Welcome and thank you for joining Human Interest today. Our programs are primarily conversational and, and our intent is to share information that may lead to a more holistic awareness of issues and perspectives uh, of various topics. And these are topics of, of, that involve human characteristics that, uh, I'm sorry I'm stumbling right now, but <laughs> it, it happens sometimes. But I do thank you for joining us today. And again, what we're, our hope is to evoke some of the human characteristics, such as curiosity and empathy, motivation, laughter, and, and yes, perhaps even anger. But today, no anger. In the studio with me today is my sister Becky Reese, our producer Rob Rourke, and our guest Marla Johnson. Uh, and many of you certainly know of Marla Johnson, some of you especially in Maine and other places that listen to our show do not know Marla Johnson, uh, most likely, but you should. But what uh, Marla was the executive director of the Hayes Caldwell Women's Center for 28 years, and she retired a couple of years ago in 2021. After really leading the organization, essential elements that needed to be addressed and just absolutely 28 years of very successful leadership. And, and I want to support my comment on this essential leadership and this successful leadership by telling you in 2022, she was, uh, I think a great honor was bestowed on you, Marla, in that they named, uh, well, I'll just give you the name, the Marla R. Johnson and Family Center. And that center is a, a 18 units, and correct me if I'm wrong on this, but it, it was a custom-built 18-unit complex, and it was really built around the ideas of comfort and security and safety for the women and children that, that would take residence there for some time. I, was there a limit on how long someone could stay? Um, well, they, they actually moved in after I left. That's true. And so they're still kind of working out the kinks as far as how long you can stay there but it's a it is transitional housing for victims of domestic violence right um one of the unique things about it if i could share this please uh there is a head start facility uh center in the complex and that is this is the only one in the united states that has a domestic violence transitional housing program with a head start facility in the complex so it's focused on families with young children um, we uh, know that there's a real need for affordable housing and transitional housing, especially for victims of domestic violence. And the ones that we were most concerned about were those, those women who had young children who really had no options for housing. And so we decided to focus the program on them. Well, that's, I didn't know that amount of detail in there, but I do know about that facility. But I also know that it's, it's really not called the Marla R. Johnson and Family Center, but it's referred to as Marla's Place. Yeah, that's... <laughs> that's, a, that's I didn't that's want them to name it after me. I do want to say that. <laughs> I'm sure. I, I really I, protested that. There, uh, know, I didn't get my way on that part, but <laughs> I am really honored. Honors are, um, I'm very honored to uh, yeah. to be a part of that, to remain well, a part of it. We talk about 28 years, so about 1993 is when you first joined the center, and 
And I'm very curious, and I think Becky and anyone that's listening would be too, is how did you find your way to the center in 1993? What's your path? Well, that wasn't a, a very scripted path on my part. Um, I had just finished my uh, master's in business administration at Texas State. My plan was to be a CPA, a certified public accountant. That's what I told my husband I was doing when I was going to grad school. That's what we were working towards and everything. Um, and uh, just, before, just after I graduated, um, I was looking for a position with a CPA, which is the next step. Um, you have to work under a CPA for a certain amount of time. And um, a, a very strange thing happened. Uh, I, I actually had a call from God, and I know that it was God because it was out loud in my um, home, and it said, call the Women's Center. And so I said, well, what is the Women's Center? <laughs> and the voice has never said anything to me ever again, and I've asked for it many times, but um, so I went to the phone book, looked around, found the Hayes County Women's Center, which is what it was called then, and called them up, shaking, you know, trying to figure out what was going on here. And um, they told me about uh, two jobs. One was overnight weekend supervisor, which paid three thirty-five an hour, and you spent wow. the night at the shelter. And so I'm sitting there going, okay, so this is what you want me to do. This is why I went to grad school and got an <laughs> MBA. And then... Um, Ruth Ann, who I ended up working with later, told me that they had the opening for executive director. And I said, oh, okay, well, tell me about that. So I took the position, felt very unprepared, realized now that, you know, um, there was no other way for me to get there. You know, I wasn't going to think of that by myself. So That's just amazing. Could you say that again? You heard a voice? I did. I, I mean, really, a voice. Yeah, said, it was a man's voice, too. Said, call the women's center. Yes, yeah. out loud in my house. Right, but no one, but you were I there. I was the only one there. Oh, I love it. That's <laughs> great. It was really strange. Yeah. Yeah. But, you know, one of the things, I, there's a couple of takeaways from that. One, I think that we're, that we're all led to do the work that we do. Now, I needed to have you know, something like that happened because there's no way I would have thought of it myself. You know, I think probably all of us have ended up in positions where we know we were supposed to be there. Another takeaway is that God cares about victims of abuse. Hmm. Um, so, um, you know, when it's that clear, um, you can't really walk away from it, so. Just okay, this is, we've got to follow up on this. Okay. The two, two thoughts that you had about that, did you have them immediately, or when did that occur to you that that was the intent for your life? I mean, did you immediately know that you had been called to that? Oh, well, you know, I was looking for a job. And... I was praying about that, you know, okay. just that kind of constant praying that you do when you if that's the way you approach things. Um, and that is the voice that I heard. Just yeah. so, and, and I can promise you, I argued with God about that. I said, this is a big mistake. <laughs> I 
I am not ready to do this. I don't even know what this is. And um, <laughs> the first six months I was at the Women's Center, of course, the Women's Center um, serves victims of family violence, sexual assault, and child abuse. I knew nothing about the issues at all that, that I was aware of. I didn't know what the Women's Center did. Um, I cried every single day for six months. I bet. Because it was just overwhelming. It was under-resourced. People were going through terrible things. There was very little support or even understanding about it. I didn't understand about it. Um, You know, the business part of it was not in great shape. And um, it just was really bad. (laughs) Well, and and just very quickly, before, uh, when it was first established in 1978, that was not the function. That was not the purpose. What, What was that, and how did that transition into a women's center well, the original for, for violence. <laughs> yeah, um, the original intent of the Hayes County Women's Center was to provide pro- provide networking for women. So back in 1978, um, you know, women were getting into professional positions and and um, looking at things in a different way, and wanted to be connected to each other and support one another. And so they had a series of brown bag lunches um, where everybody would come together, bring their lunch, you know, and have a speaker. They did things like car repair uh, was one of them. I mean, that's, you know, uh, they had um, speakers from around town and, you know, things that people might be interested in. Well, one of the speakers was talking about, came and talked about domestic violence. And this group of very... um, connected and aware women had, most of them didn't really know that much about domestic violence, which no one talked about domestic violence in 1978. It was not a topic that was discussed. And um, one of the members of the group spoke up and said that she had been a victim of domestic violence. And that literally changed the whole direction of, of the group. And they began looking into it more There was state funding that was just becoming available for assistance with shelters, which was minimal. I mean, so small. Um, But they applied for that funding and became one of the original six shelters in the state of Texas, the only one in a small town. Um, And then it just grew from there. So, you know, we, we owe the services that we have here in San Marcos and in Hayes County and Caldwell County to those people who started that, who took that first step and really uh, jumped out and and did this new and scary thing um, to help victims of abuse. One of the stories that I was told was um, when they first got a phone, phone number, uh, one of the the early calls was from a woman from Kyle who walked all the way to San Marcos with a broken arm carrying her baby. Oh, my. And she needed a place to stay. Hmm. So it was one of those just kind of break the dam sort of things. Once you, you have this resource, people, you know, who really need it step forward. And that has been the case and is the case to this day. Still, um, you know, shocking how many people need, need the support. 
Well, you mentioned that the, the new family center has a program for the children. Mm-hmm. Uh, what over those, I guess it was, I think you had told me previously, probably 1979 is when the mission morphed mm-hmm. into mm-hmm. A protection. What, and you joined in 1993, so what did you have to do or kind of generally to get to where it is now, which is a oh, highly gosh. recognized <laughs> center? Um, well, actually, I started in 1992. Not that that's that significant, but just to get it straight. Um, Thank you. So, um, <laughs> uh, well, when I started, I think there were 11 employees, counting me. Um, and when I left, I think there were 52. So it grew, um, you know, significantly. And what did we have to do to get from here to there? Well, there were, you know, it all happens in the midst of the culture. Uh, So there was a lot going on as far as awareness. I think that one of the main, um, one of the main things that we've always focused on at HCWC is education and prevention. Whereas a lot of centers didn't focus on that. but that's what we have always felt like was the most important thing to change is to um, let the, you know, make sure that the people know, the culture knows how serious this problem is and that we have got to all do something about it, not just HCWC. And of course, the Me Too movement probably really helped with that. I'm sure it did. Um, and now things are much different. They're, they're, you hardly ever run into anyone who doesn't know something about family violence, sexual assault, or child abuse. So that is a big change. Yeah. Could I ask, uh, you, you said that the education for children is a big part of the mission. Mm-hmm. What about education for the women? I mean, mm-hmm. is there help for them, you know, to, to figure out where they are and you know at the oh, moment in their time or how to get go forward empowering kind of well yes yes all of that yeah. um so there are counts there's counseling there's legal advocacy uh to help them with any legal remedies that might be available to them there is advocacy so adv- advocates trained advocates work with each client to help them figure out their next steps and that's happening at the transitional housing as well, as well as the shelter and the non-residential program. So it's a, you know, comprehensive program to try to, to help them identify all of the options that are available to them. Now, the main thing you're trying to do with a victim of abuse or to help a victim of abuse is to help them gain the confidence to make their own decisions. So that's the tricky part about it is you have to be aware of all the resources and and help them navigate those if they choose to and be okay if they don't. So um, just just giving them the confidence to make their own decisions again and feel you know feel good about that is the main goal. I think just for me that's so important because when I think of uh, shelters for women and children, I just think of a place to stay. I don't yeah. I don't know about all these other wonderful resources yeah well the the shelter um is it's funny to be giving this talk again because you know i'm retired now so i don't give it all the time (laughs) but it is coming back to me um 
the shelter is actually the smallest program at HCWC uh, and should be because you wanna work with people before they get to that point. But in the shelter, when they hit the door, a team is working with them on what they're gonna do next. So there's, there are people who are working with the children, there are people who are working with the adult, um, and there are sometimes men in the shelter as well. Um, so, you know, men could be victims of domestic violence as well, and sexual assault especially. Uh, and especially uh, have possibly been abused as children. So there are um, specialized services for those who were molested as a child as well. So it's, that's why the number of staff members grew, is that um, you, know, you kind of cover the bases and then you need more specialized services, so. And you said you also find resources, but we'll get back to that in just a second. We need to take a station break. Stay with us. And you are listening to Human Interest on KCSM LPFM 104.1 San Marcos, Texas. As a reminder, the views expressed on this program are those of the hosts, the guests, and not necessarily those of KCSM or SMTXCRA. We're going to be right back after these public service announcements. Get ready to explore uncharted frequencies. I'm your host, Mitchell Blair, with the ultimate showcase of San Marcos's local artists and producers from every genre. This is Season 2. Come over to the Price Center in downtown San Marcos, Texas, every first Tuesday of the month for the helpfully named First Tuesday SMTX Film Series. Doors open at 6.30 for pizza and beer, with films starting at 7. Tickets are $5 at the door. Dance Hall Days screens Tuesday, February 6th at the Price Center, presented in partnership with the Center for Texas Music History at Texas State. Dance halls were once as common as cattle in Texas. Now they exist in a time where their past is legend and future uncertain. Feature documentary Dance Hall Days showcases a cast of iconic characters striving to keep these legendary venues alive, while one man fights to make sure that not one more is lost to history. Featuring Texas's best dance floors and beer joints with unique archives, Dr. Jason Millard, director of the Center for Texas Music History, joins film director Eric McCowan for a post-film Q&A. For more information, including the rest of the year's schedule, visit their website at firsttuesdaysmtx.com. The Rotary Club of San Marcos hosts a casino night fundraiser on Friday, March 1st at 7 p.m. The event will be held at the Commemorative Air Force Museum at the San Marcos Airport. The museum houses a collection of World War II aircraft that are still airworthy. Tickets are $50 each, and 75% of profits will be donated to CASA of Central Texas. Remaining funds will benefit other local charities. Email smtxrotary at gmail.com for more information about tickets. That is smtx. R-O-T-A-R-Y at gmail.com. Rotary Casino Night is a great opportunity to have fun, raise money for local charities, and enjoy a fascinating historical facility. See you there. Thank you for staying with us. I'm just about to uh, ask Marla. She'd mentioned about some of the other outreach and connecting with other entities that the the city, the county might have, or the county senses to 
how you engage them with, with the people at the, the shelter, the women, or training for your own people, perhaps? Yeah. Um, well, there's a lot of ways. I mean, working with the community is essential. Um, one thing that I would point out would be the multidisciplinary teams. So, um, and, and the best example of that, or a good example of that, is Roxanne's House, the Children's Advocacy Center, which is one of the programs at HCWC. So Roxanne's House is a program where when a child makes an outcry of abuse, especially sexual abuse, they're brought to Roxanne's House, which is a non-residential facility, um, where they meet with a trained forensic interviewer to get the details of the story, and it's recorded. Law enforcement and Child Protective Services are on a team with the uh, professionals at Roxanne's House and they will be in another room watching the interview. So what would happen in the past before Roxanne's house, before children's advocacy centers, is that children would have to go to the police station or have to go to a child protective services office, a place that wasn't necessarily child friendly and that would just further traumatize them or had the potential to further traumatize them. Um, and so this is all about the kids. It's all about a place that feels comfortable for children. They can also get a sexual assault exam there. The sexual assault nurses will come there. There's a, a room that we built and furnished and everything uh, for them to have those medical exams. Um, That's done there, there at Roxanne's house. Oh, that's nice. Yeah, it makes a big difference. It um, makes a difference. And... Um, and then there are services for them and their non-offending family members. Uh, there's counseling, play therapy, uh, ongoing counseling for, for them and, their, and, and advocacy for the families to make the next steps. And then all of the professionals that are working on that case, law enforcement, prosecutors, child protective services, uh, the sexual assault nurse examiners, and the professionals from Roxanne's house have a multidisciplinary team that meets monthly and staffs all the open child abuse cases so that they can move those along as quickly as possible. It can take well over two years, and with COVID, I don't even know where that stands now, but it can take two years for a child abuse case to work its way through the system. And that's a long time for a child to wait. So, um, Wait where? Well, they're either, it depends. Yeah. You know, they could be in foster care or they could, you know, be just waiting for the case to go to court and see what's going to happen. But no one so. stays that long at the women's center shelter. No, no, that, no, no. The shelter, so that's a different program, yeah. uh, they, these families could end up in the shelter. Um, and that's, you know, the way things cross over. Um, but the shelter is set up to be a 30-day program. Okay. There, I mean, people could stay there longer, depending upon the situation, but it's, it's designed to be a short-term emergency shelter. You spoke of Roxanne's house, and I, I remember years ago it was across from the Little H-E-B. Mm -hmm. Where is it now? It's uh, been moved to the HCWC campus. Okay, so, so it is on campus. the house that we had over here on Comanche Street 
uh, was just too small. Yeah. And, and honestly, it was too loud. <laughs> you know, there were H-E-B trucks coming and going, and it was really, when you're, when you're recording a child on an interview, you know, you need to get every little bit. And the whole point of recording the interviews was so that the child didn't have to tell their story over and over again. I, when I first became aware more of what was going on in the city when I retired from the university, I think I met Roxanne, and then mm -hmm. then she died. She died, and I mm -hmm. I really could you just speak briefly oh, yeah. about her? Roxanne McKimmy is who that program is named after. Um, Roxanne was on the board for the Women's Center for many years. She was on the board when I started. Um, she was a just unbelievable advocate for victims of abuse. Um, did a lot of. She worked at the university in the School of Social Work. Uh, she wasn't a, a professional. She was an administrative. She was an, you know, on the administrative staff. Um, had a great attention to detail. Really, um, really was supportive of starting a children's advocacy center. That was another big leap for HCWC. Um, the, I think we were about the 16th in the state. Um, and, you know, most of those were in bigger cities, and none of them at that time were part of a domestic violence and sexual assault program. But we've, we had all those relationships here that you need to run a children's advocacy center. We were actually doing, we had a staff member who was good at talking to children, and she actually would be called by the police to do forensic interviews before there was a children's advocacy center. And she's the one, Kim Burke is her name, she's now a pastor in Bernie, oh, um, who, who wanted to start the Children's Advocacy Center. And Roxanne was in that group, and she um, died during the time that we were getting it started. And so um, that was one of the first things we all agreed on, is that we wanted to name the program after her. Well, we were, that, that's good. I didn't know the... I just knew her briefly and then saw the house and, okay, mm -hmm. thank you yeah, for that. that's where that came from. We're talking about the connectivity, mm -hmm. but you're connected to the other centers in the state mm -hmm. and other centers within the United States. Mm -hmm. Yeah, there's a real a web. Um, so um, all the centers in the state, you know, there's connect, there are, just every version, every community has kind of a little different version. We're connected with children's advocacy centers through one vehicle, you know, sexual assault programs through the Texas Association Against Sexual Assault, uh, family violence through the Texas Council on Family Violence, children's advocacy centers through Children's Advocacy Centers of Texas. And those professional organizations work with all of the different centers in the state. And just practically, um, you know, shelters um, move people from place to place for their own safety or because they have someone there that they that could possibly help them so you know in that town and they need to move to a different shelter until their court case is resolved or something like that so um, so there's a lot of um, cooperative um, services that are offered across the state and even the nation that's that's good to know. Mm -hmm. I mean, that so someone in San Marcos or Kyle or wherever could might end up in 
don't know, Florida? Well, <laughs> by their choice. I yes, mean, we're, yes. we, of course, don't ever send anyone somewhere that they don't want to go. Of but, course. Um, but that can be an option to relocate someone yeah. if that's what they, they, they choose to do. Yeah. Well, you, uh, I think you mentioned maybe, maybe we're off air, air at the time, but that the police chief here in San Marcos, Stan Stanbridge, is on your board. He, he is. Now, he, I, he wasn't on the board when I was there, but I know he's on the board now. That's a good thing. Uh, Chase Stapp was on the board when I was there, uh, and he was the chief of police and is now... I should know his title, but it's, you know, assistant city managers. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, so Chase was on the board when I was there. And it is a requirement of a children's advocacy center to have a chief of police or a sheriff on the board. Hmm. Uh, also a prosecutor, a, a district attorney, and someone higher up from Child Protective Services. Uh-huh. So, and luckily that's not been a problem for us here. Sometimes that is a problem for centers to find someone, you know, who will take on that responsibility. Well, if, if you re- re- uh, reflect back over your tenure, mm-hmm. how has the interactions with the police force, not specifically, but how generally has that changed over time? Uh, it's become much better. <laughs> um, I think, I mean, there... Everyone has their job to do, and I certainly, I just want to say that I have so much respect for our law enforcement, always have, and I'm sure always will. Um, but they have their responsibility, you know, to keep our community safe, and we at the Women's Center have our responsibility to maintain confidentiality and safety for the, the victims that we serve, and sometimes those things cross. Um, so that's one of the one of the benefits of the multidisciplinary teams is that and the task forces uh, that we have and that is to um, iron out ways that we can work together under different circumstances and develop relationships so that we trust one another and understand what the other uh, group is trying to do what the other professionals are trying to do Um, so my personal experience is that, um, you know, we have great people who are trying to do the right thing, who are trying to do the right thing. And um, the confidentiality at the Women's Center is really paramount. Uh, there's no way that you're going to get people to come in for services if they don't believe that you're going to maintain confidentiality because it could be a safety issue and just because it's embarrassing and terrible and they don't want anyone to know about it. And um, so that's a priority for the Women's Center to do that. And sometimes when, you know, sometimes that causes a conflict with law enforcement. But now there's so much more understanding of the issues and um, what's really going on and, and it's, we know that everyone is on the same page. Um, now, there used to be, and like I said, I have the greatest respect for law enforcement, so let me state that again. But it used to be that there was a known problem of what we called batters with a badge. So if there was someone who was in law enforcement who was also abusing his wife or children, 
then that was a real problem because they have different access, different power. Um, and I think that the law enforcement community uh, has taken it very seriously to, to um, make sure that that's not happening within their ranks. So that's less of a problem now. We need to take another break at this time. Stay with us. Come back with our conversation with Marla. And you're listening to Human Interest here on KZSM LPFM 104.1, kzsm.org, San Marcos, Texas, going worldwide. Thank you for tuning in. We're going to take a quick station ID break here, and we'll be right back after these public service announcements. That your imagination free. Join local creator Karen Cross for a monthly open studio session at the Price Center from 6.30 to 8.30 p.m. on the second Wednesday of each month. Karen provides a friendly and happy space along with a variety of tips and techniques for creating by yourself or with others. She focuses on recycled materials and art journals. Bring a project and your supplies or just show up and plug in. Open studio sessions are free and open to all. Cash and art supplies donations, of course, are always welcome. The Price Center is located downtown at 222 West San Antonio Street. For more information, please call us at 512-392-2900. On the radio, this is the Sweet Honey Bear Blues on Tuesday at 8 o'clock. Till 10 o'clock, you got me giving you what you just didn't know you needed. Hello there, I'm Salwa Khan. Billions of tons of food is wasted every year here in the United States. Wasted food has a huge carbon footprint and is rife with wasted time, effort, resources, and energy. Hear what you can do on Mothering Earth, your source for sustainable living news on KZSM, True Community Radio, 11 a.m. on the second and fourth Tuesdays of the month. And we're back with you here in the studio on uh, Human Interest here. You can hear us every the first Thursday of every month from 2 o'clock until 3 o'clock. And Marianne Reese is your host. Marianne, back to you. Thank you, Rob. We were talking with Marla and uh, more about the police interaction. And I, I have, was wondering, do women tend to, or is there a tendency or a general statement that women would rather at find the women's center or go to the police? Is there a... Um, I think I know the answer to that. Yeah, <laughs> well, I think most would rather not call the police, you know, to come out for a domestic violence call. Um, but of course, we do have the police bringing women to the center regularly. I mean, that, that happens regularly. Um, so it happens both ways, okay. both ways. How do women know about the Hayes Caldwell Women's Center? I mean, how do you get the word out besides talking to groups? I know you've done a lot of presentations and... Yeah. Um, well, um, one how, thing how that do is... How they look you up or get the phone yeah. number? Or 
Well, they can, you know, they can just, they can just Google um, domestic violence services, right? San Marcos, Texas, and it'll come up. Uh, hopefully, it, this is harder now because we're growing so fast here. But, um, you know, hopefully there's enough people who know about it that if it comes up somehow, they'll be directed to them. There's also the National Domestic Violence Hotline, um, or RAIN, which is, I'm going to try to remember the, what that stands for. Now I don't work there anymore, you know, so I forget. <laughs> but those are national hotlines. One, RAIN is for sexual assault and um, rape, abuse, incest, something network is what that stands for. So those are national hotlines that are um, where people call and then they direct them back to us. Okay. So, and they, you know, have a different level of advertising than we do. Um, so. Do you know how, do you collect data on how people actually find you or? Yes, I'm sure they do. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I mean, I know it is something, okay, so there, we have a 24 hour <coughs> helpline. Help line. It's 396-HELP, 512-396-HELP. Uh, on the helpline form, and I, I can't even remember exactly how many calls they answer every year. Uh, yeah, those numbers used to be just wedged in my mind and now they're not, but it's a lot. Um, well over, you know, several thousand a year. Um, and on the form, one of the things that you ask is how did you hear about us? So it is tracked. Okay. Um, but it is always um, not the most important thing to ask. Of course. You know, when someone's yeah. in a crisis, it's not, you know, you don't want to take the time to figure <laughs> like all that to take out. Take this data down. Right, <laughs> right. I mean, there is some, some information that you have to get. But um, so. Have you noticed a change over the reason women come? Is it child abuse? Is their abuse of the wife or? Is there, has it changed? Is it the same? Or? Um, well, of course it's grown. Um, you know, it's one of those things that you can't ever get on top of. Um, it has grown. It has grown. I mean, from when I first started, which seemed huge, I don't even remember the numbers exactly, uh, to now, I mean, it's, you know, much, much, much bigger. I, the one thing that we hope is that people are reaching out sooner than they used to. Uh, it used to be that that people didn't feel like there was any resources, you know, didn't really think, thought this was an isolated incident, it would never happen again, you know, tried to reason their way out of it or just deal with it the best way that they could. Uh, and now I think that people know enough about that others have been abused and that this is a this is a common problem that people that many people have experienced and that it can be really serious and they'll reach out sooner. So, um, so I would say that is a, that is a change and I, I think, I hope, this is optimistic, Good. but <laughs> I hope um, that they say with a social change movement, if 50% if over 50%, 51% of the, of the culture and the community believe something, that it will change. And I think we're there on, well, we're definitely there on child abuse. I think we're there on domestic violence. 
and I'm hopeful that we will be there on sexual assault someday, where people have a common understanding of what it is and how serious it is, and that we don't want that in our community. Um, and so that's much different than it was when I first started. There was very little awareness. Um, and I was a perfect example. I didn't know anything about it either before I started. So. Well, the, the women who come are men. It, it's not always the spouse. Or when you're talking about women coming with children, it's not necessarily the spouse that's the abuser, or, or is it more typically? It's most the often. Or well, partner. Yeah, it could be. I remember the first battered man that I spoke to on the phone, took a helpline call from, um, and I was so shocked that the things he was talking about were the same things that the women talked about. Um, and he, um, you know, had been uh, physically abused. His tires had been slashed so that he couldn't go anywhere. Um, his, you know, there were just threats to his safety all the time. So, and, and it was even worse for him <laughs> because, you know, a woman might be able to find another woman that she could talk to at least who would be sympathetic. A man wouldn't dare, especially back then, would never have reached out to another man and said that he was being abused by his wife. So he was really isolated. Yeah. Um, wow. So I also remember when we um, first opened the shelter that is, we built a second shelter um, on the campus, a bigger shelter. And um, the first, and, and we had separate bathrooms for each room. And we had been putting men who needed services in hotels because we didn't have a good facility to house them in the previous shelter. But in this shelter, we said, okay, we can bring men into this shelter too. But everybody was a little wondering how that was gonna work. Um, and so right off the bat, a man came in um, to the shelter and he happened to be a chef. Oh. And the women, so the way the shelter is run <laughs> is that uh, it's cooperative group living. And so, you know, people take turns cooking and cleaning and taking care of the kids and all of that kind of stuff. Oh, that's good. Yeah, okay. so it, it, it gets people to working together and, yeah. you know, so they can support one another. Um, well, he really wanted to take over all the cooking, which everyone was really <laughs> happy about. <laughs> and he stayed there his full month and he, you know, it, it worked great. He had the same issues that the women had. He connected really appropriately and well with everyone. And, uh, and women were literally sitting at the dining room table crying the day that he left. <laughs> they wanted him to be able to stay. But so that was a good lesson for us. That well, it just occurred to me, you, you've mentioned several shelters now. How, how many groups can you host for up to 30 days? How many rooms have you, I guess? Or you units? know, they actually have just expanded that. Um, and I went over to look at it not too long ago. Um, so we built a new shelter in 2009, which was um, 10 family shelter. We had a 10 family shelter before, but it was a little bit smaller. So this was a 10 family shelter and there were four more rooms 
in the second story that were roughed in in case they needed to um, to have those in the future. Well, they did uh, finish those out within the last year, and I, I believe that they're using them now. So now that would be 14 families at a time. Oh. So, Okay, here, we've all aware of, and we mentioned this a couple of days ago about the E.J. Carroll and mm -hmm. the civil lawsuits and those issues, and you mentioned what's going on here in San Marcos also mm -hmm. with, but how do you see these issues impacting, do you see it as hurting <laughs> the issues of uh, violence against women or, or helping? It's, and the I Me mean, Too, I, I guess, see movement. it as helping. Um, just the fact that there are, you know, juries and judges and and people in the justice system who see that this is such an issue, that uh, believe that sexual assault can occur and does occur, and that will, um, you know, uh, take a stand if a victim is maligned, um, says a lot. That wouldn't have happened uh, in the past. And the local situation, I, and I have to admit that I don't know everything about this, so I hope I'm not mis, you know, saying the wrong thing here, but the uh, fact that the, the students at the university especially were so upset that someone would be brought in on the football team who had a criminal record and that uh, had, you know, a, at a minimum, severe allegations of sexual assault and with details about how serious that was and that there was an out, there was outrage about that. To me, that says so much mm -hmm. about where we are as far as how we, we as a culture feel about our expectations of how people should should not abuse one another. So that <laughs> is, and especially, you know, when you match it up against football and... We'll come back and uh, keep on this uh, point of view or <laughs> this issue uh, in just a moment. And we'll be right back with you here on... Um Human Interest on KCSM LPFM 104.1. Be right back with you. Raices, Roots, hosted by Kathy Lara. Our past, our present, our future. Join the conversation. Hear the stories. Every Sunday at 7 p.m. right here on kzsm.org, your true community radio station in San Marcos, Texas. Tune in every Friday night to hear how you can get involved locally to We the People here on KZSM.org from 7 until 8 o'clock every Friday night. Learn how you can go down to City Hall, how you can talk to people, how you can build your networks, but more than anything else, how you can build community here in San Marcos on KZSM.org. We the People every Friday night, 7 to 8 o'clock. Ladies 
ladies and gentlemen, y toda mi gente. My name is Josh, also known as DJ Alpha in the mix. And I am the host of the Latin Energy Show on KZSM San Marcos. I'm inviting everyone to tune in every Thursday evening and join the Latin Energy Party. Here on KZSM.org, we are all about community support. So tune in online or download the KZSM app on your mobile device. Shout outs and requests, make sure to follow and tag us on Facebook at Latin Energy Show KZSM. Tu sabes. Marla, thanks for joining us. This has been amazing what we've learned. And, and just, I, again, um, it's it's sad it really is but i like your optimism that people getting the word out people are if the numbers are increasing coming to the shelters and they know there's there's help for them and what you and the group and over the years have evolved in terms of outreach to other entities i i wasn't aware of all of this what is done for people when they come to the women's center mm -hmm. but one of the things i was thinking about it's always this this concept of can a wife be raped by her husband? Mm -hmm. And is that just folded into abuse of, you know, physical abuse of a woman? Or I think I sexual abuse say is, um, has its own level of um, severity. Um, so, you know, when someone is sexually abused, I mean, the most common... Um, almost, almost universal feeling of someone who's been sexually abused is that it's their fault somehow. That they did something that misled someone or, you know, that they should have stopped it. And, and part of the reason that they feel that way is because it's such a violation to be forced um, to have sex with someone that you don't want to is such a violation of, of, of a person and so hard to overcome. So I, I almost think it's a, I do think that it is a defense mechanism for people to think, well, I could have protected myself if I would have done this. But the blame needs to be put on the person who committed the abuse, not on the person who was abused. There is never any reason for anyone to be beaten or forced to have sexual relations or for a child to be abused. No. There, there's just no justification for that. And so victims most often take responsibility themselves. They think I should have done this, that, or the other. And, um, and that's part of the thinking that HCWC is trying to unwind is uh, for them to be able to see who really is responsible for it. Yeah. Well, I'm gonna take this one level up. It's, it's too deep for us to go much into, I guess, but I, in the, we all know what's going over in Israel and mm -hmm. Hamas and what happened October 7th. Mm -hmm where so many of the women were raped. And that seems to be always what happens in a war or, I think that really says so much about what that act mm -hmm. does, not only to the individual, but to families that find out about mm -hmm. it, the citizens of that community. So it seems like 
it's horrific mm -hmm. what we had to hear and learn about that event. But that goes on here. Mm -hmm. It goes on in San Marcos, in Texas. And, but it, it doesn't well, rise to that level of... Yeah, thank, hopefully. <laughs> it doesn't <laughs> but rise it's to that still level. Horrific. But yeah, it is. Yeah, it doesn't. I mean, just one is too many. Um, yep. And, and it, that is a good point. I mean, a, a good point to make is it's not about sex. Mm -mm. It's about power. Yes. It's a, about having power over another person. And so, you know, there's no, um, there's no reason to think that someone misled someone about that. No. And that it's done for a very known purpose. Right. <laughs> you know, yeah, I mean, at, the, what when we you're heard, ordered to do that. Yeah, yeah. I mean, what we, what we uh, have been told about what happened in Israel on that day is just clearly an act of war. Yes. And, um, and you know, just trying to destroy people. So. Well, it, it's working both ways. I mean, it's, but it's, mm -hmm. it was initiated. Right. Well, Becky asked a question at one of our breaks of you, and maybe you want to ask it again. Well, <clears throat> just. Because it is important. <laughs> well, just for, yeah, just when we began, you said, uh, in your position for the first six months, you went home and cried, every, you know, every evening. And I just wondered if at some point how you protect your heart, how, yeah. how you keep going. Well, I wish that I could say it was uh, that organized because I didn't necessarily <laughs> go home and cry. Sometimes I cried at work. Okay. <laughs> um, yep. It just was so, um, there was, I just was so overwhelmed with not only the issues, my office was in the shelter at that time, so I was right in the middle of it all, um, but also the fact that I, everything seemed so kind of disjointed. You know, the, the um, policies were um, not put together. They were like different pieces of paper, you know, like a stack of papers and things like that. It was just, it didn't have the stability to, to get the pieces to go forward. And that is, and to follow up on what you asked during the break, um, I did finally begin to see all the parts of it and let it come together. And I also saw how people were helped, you know, how, and, and, and just had the conviction uh, once you know what's going on, there's no way you're not going to do it. I mean, you're not going to stop doing it. So we're just going to have to figure out a way to do it right and do it better. Mm. And, um, and there were so many good people there. Just, you know, good people working there, good people serving on the board, good volunteers. It was, so there was all of that. It was just, and then it began to make sense about how we should put it together and take the next step and 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 I finally could quit crying about it <laughs> so. well, I could see just what you're saying as you began to organize and then you you could see these good outcomes mm -hmm. you could see the good that everyone was doing and and sounds like the organization the policies you put in place to make it work that you could see those positive results yeah so. 
Now, the board, when I was hired, um, they had been t advised um, by someone who became my friend in Bastrop, was the leader of the shelter there, Debbie Brissett, that they needed to hire someone with a business background. So that was pretty much unheard of at that time because most of the people who got into the work were social workers and counselors, which are desperately needed, but there's also the need to run the organization like a business. And so that's why they hired me. I, you know, I was like, why would you hire me? I mean, I'm, I had to get someone, a friend of mine who had her master's in social work to help me fill out the application. I didn't even understand what the questions were. So um, anyway, but that is true. That is what they needed was someone to, to run the business part of it. I always said, my job is to keep the doors open. I'm, I do direct services to a minimal degree and then give hand you off to someone who's going to do a much better job. And then I'm going to go back to my spreadsheets and <laughs> my, you know, running the business so that you can continue to do this work. Well, I, I know when I first spoke with Marla, and we'll end with this, is that I, I asked you what you saw for the future. And I will just say, and I think you've already given us that idea, that you're, you have significant optimism mm -hmm. for improving and that, that things are changing. We just need to be aware of misogyny, or we need to be aware of, of all of these acts going on, and, and sometimes we need to speak up and help our friends. Yeah, and help, help young people help learn young how people. to have healthy relationships. Yeah. Uh, HCWC.org, there are lots of resources. Uh, they have a podcast. They have, um, you know, uh, lots of information that can be helpful. And the helpline you said was 512 uh, 396 six. help. Right, 4357. Right. Thank you for joining us. Thank you, Marla. This has been an eye opener. And I appreciate so the needed. opportunity. Thank you, Rob here. and Becky. Mm -hmm.